Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our look at the testimony of defense expert witness, Dr. Charles Hassan, a psychologist who observed and performed tests on Michael Barrison. On today's installment, we begin our exploration of the prosecution's direct examination of their own expert witness, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger. That's all coming up right after the break. 2022. The defense indicates that they have no more witnesses at this time, and Judge Stephen Taylor asks Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn whether he wishes to call any rebuttal witnesses. Shellhorn invites Dr. Lewis Schlesinger to the stand. Dr. Schlesinger is in his 70s, and he has a full head of thick white hair and sports a white horseshoe mustache and reading glasses when he looks at documents. He wears a blue shirt, a blue patterned tie, and a gray suit. After the witness is sworn in, Shellhorn begins his questioning. Good afternoon, Doctor. Good morning, Captain. Can you please introduce yourself to the jury and tell them what you do for a living? I'm, well, Lewis Lessinger. I'm a forensic psychologist. What is forensic psychology? It's simply the application of behavioral science to the law. It's as simple as that. Are you licensed as a psychologist? Yes. Can you tell the jury about that? I'm a licensed psychologist. How long have you been licensed? Since 1976. Uh, Are you board certified? Yes. Can you tell the jury about that? I'm board certified as a forensic psychologist from the American Board of Professional Psychology. I've been board certified for well over 30 years. So there is board certification in the field of psychology? Definitely. Can you tell the jury a little bit about your educational background? Sure. I received my uh, doctorate, my PhD, in 1975 from the New School for Social Research in New York City. I was a trainee at Greystone Psychiatric Hospital from 71 to 73. I did my internship with the New Jersey Clinical Internship Program in Psychology from 73 to 74, where I trained at the New Jersey uh, State Diagnostic Center. That was the state's forensic center at that time. I rotated, did another rotation at Trenton State Prison, and then Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, the Varun Building Readjustment Unit. Today it's Ancline Forensic Center, but it used to be called uh, the Varun Building. I did some uh, postgraduate training at the New York Center for Psychoanalytic Training from 76 to 78, where I took courses in uh, psychoanalytic theory and therapy. 
and I had uh, postdoctoral individual super supervision from 75 to 77, which is, which is required. I'm licensed, board certified. I am a tenured full professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, which is part of the City University of New York. And um, I've been there since uh, 1997. Can you, can you tell us a little more about that, about your teaching experience there, Doctor? Uh, John Jay College is the, is the criminal justice um, school for the City University of New York. City University is a mass university. Baruch College is the business school. City College is the, the arts. And John Jay is really the criminal justice school. Um, I teach uh, undergraduates, master's students, and doctoral students um, as well. I, I teach forensic psychology. I'm, I'm, a, I'm yeah, full professor of forensic psychology. And I was just going to ask you that. What type of courses do you teach? Well, I teach um, psychopathology, um, forensic psychology, uh, crime scene analysis, and homicide. I teach a specific course in homicide as well. Can you tell the jury a little bit about some of the professional activities that you're involved in? Professional activities, in a, well, I've had a lot of clinical experience, but other, other than my clinical experience, I was elected president of the New Jersey Psychological Association in 1989. Prior to that, I was a vice president on the executive board. I was also a member and later chair of the State Ethics Committee from 1982 to 1988. I was also a member of the Forensic Psychology Committee from 1980 to the present. I was president of the New Jersey Psychology Political Action Committee from 91 to 93. I was a member of the Board of Trustees of the New Jersey Psychological Foundation from 96 to 98. I was president of the Society of Psychologists in Private Practice from 2001 to 2002. I've been on the executive board of the uh, Essex Union County Association of Psychologists from 2007 to 2008. I was elected member of the Council of Representatives of the American Psychological Association. I did that from 91 to 94. The American Psychological Association, the Council of Representatives of the American Psychological Association is really like their executive committee. And so I did that for several years. I was also um, treasurer of a division of group psychotherapy and editor of that group psychotherapy bulletin. I was an advisory board member from 83 to 88 of the uh, American College of Forensic Psychology. I was uh, a member of the Board of Trustees of the New Jersey Academy of Psychology. From 1980 to 1987, I was a member and later chair of the Special Classification Review Board at the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center at Avenel. I was appointed by the governor of New Jersey and the commissioner of corrections. That's the board that evaluates inmates at the ADTC sex offender unit and makes recommendations to the parole board for their release. I have been an associate editor of the International Journal of Offender Therapy and Comparative Criminology from 2005 and on the editorial board of the Journal of Threat Assessment from, 2000, from 1999 to 2003. Doctor, can I just interrupt you on that? When sure. you say that you're the editor of something like that, what does that mean? I was associate editor, not the editor. I was associate editor. What's the difference? Well, the editor is in charge of the journal. The editor has an editorial board, and they review papers that are presented for publication. That's basically what you do. A journal is not limited to, to uh, the editorial board. Very often, they'll send it out to external reviewers as well. Since 2000, I've been a co-principal investigator on a major research project with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit down in Quantico. 
where we studied, we have thousands of extraordinary crimes, files we got from the FBI, and we have a major research project where we study extraordinary crime, sexual murder, serial murder, serial rape, suicide by cop, bias homicide, domestic homicide, and, and other forms of serious crime, which resulted in some major publications as well. In 2004, myself and four of my colleagues at John Jay conducted the research on uh, sexual abuse in a Catholic church by uh, priests and deacons from um, 1950 to, to 2002. It was under the auspices of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. The uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops reached out to John Jay to do this for a couple of reasons. But one is because we had the FBI project it, it, it was going so well. Let, let me say one thing. The FBI is a very paranoid organization. They do not like to share their information with others. So, But they did with us in terms of all their files. We have a room almost the size of this just filled with files. There was no problem at all in terms of confidentiality or anything like that. So um, the head of the FBI at that time, the, the deputy head, uh, left and was hired by the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to conduct this study. And because of uh, the very good experience that we had with the FBI, that's how John Jay was selected to do it. So we did that, and we presented our results to, to the bishops. Um, I have also been a member of the Senate Task Force on Internet uh, Information for Registered Sex Offenders. I was appointed by the acting governor and the, Sen and the Senate president. What happened was um, New Jersey needed to uh, redo Megan's Law. That's the community notification of, of registered sex offenders. And in, but before they did that, they put together a task force. I was on it representing uh, mental health. There was someone from the prosecutor's office, the defense bar, Senator Verso was on it. It was Megan, Megan Kanka's senator, uh, Joe Vitale, who was uh, um, a senator as well, was on it. Someone, someone else, someone from Rutgers was on it as well, I think. And we um, basically rewrote the law and we held public hearings and so on. And there was a number of reasons why that had to be done, but it's not relevant to anything else. I've been uh, on the Research Advisory Board of the FBI, then specifically the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime at the Behavioral Analysis Unit from 2010 to 2012. And I've been a periodic instructor at the FBI since 2008, although I haven't been there in a while. We're all shut down and so on. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Prosecutor Shellhorn next prompts Dr. Schlesinger to tell the jury about his experience working with psychological patients. I was just going to ask you if you could tell the jury about some of your clinical experience. Clinical experience, right. So um, in addition to being a, a tenured professor, I've also had a private practice of clinical and forensic psychology since 1976. I was um, a consultant at Fair Oaks Hospital, or now it's called Summit Hospital, from 76 to 2000. Uh, where I worked with adults and adolescents and, and almost exclusively psychological evaluations, very limited therapy, only early on. I've been a consultant at Little Hill Alina Lodge in Blairstown, New Jersey, from 1998 to the present. That's a substance abuse unit, a long-term treatment program for substance abuse. 
I was also on the staff of the uh, VA Medical Center in East Orange from 1976 to 1999. And there I worked on their alcohol and substance abuse program. I worked on their uh, compensation and pension program. That's where veterans get evaluated for PTSD and that type of thing. But I also founded a violence clinic in the VA, which the, clinic, the purpose of the clinic was to evaluate people with respect to a problem with violence, uh, and then we treated them. And it was the first uh, violence clinic in the entire VA system, and it became brought into the PTSD program when the PTSD program uh, started. And uh, so, and I coordinated that from 77 to 92. Prior to that, I was on the staff of JFK Medical Center in Edison, I worked in their mental health center, and I also worked at their rehab unit as well. And I was a consultant to the Edison Police Department, the Juvenile Aid Bureau, from 75 to 76. Doctor, have you ever received any awards uh, in recognition of things you've done? Uh, yes. Can you tell the jury about some of those awards? Yes. In 1990, I was awarded Psychologist of the Year by the New Jersey Psychological Association. In 1993, I received the Carl F. Heiser Presidential Award from the American Psychological Association. In 2003, I received the Distinguished Service Award from the Society of Psychologists in Private Practice. From 2005 to the present, I've been a, a distinguished practitioner in the National Academies of Practice. The National Academies of Practice is based up of nine medical specialists, including psychologists, and each specialty is limited to 100 people in that specialty. And the purpose is to advise the United States Congress on matters of health care. And so uh, I, I've been on that. And it's, in 2014, I received the Distinguished Researcher Award from the New Jersey Psychological Association. I was just going to ask you about some of your uh, professional organizations that you're a member of. Yeah. Uh, I'm a fellow of the American Psychological Association. A fellow is a little bit different than being a member. Um, I was a member for many years, but when the American Psychological Association determines that your work, your contribution had national impact, they can elect you to be a fellow. It can't be local or state. They have to determine that it was national impact. Uh, so I'm a fellow of the APA. I've been a fellow of um, the New Jersey Psychological Association. I said I was president of that a while back. I'm also a member of the American Academy of Forensic Psychology. I'm actually a fellow of, of the American Academy of Forensic Psychology. It's not on my CV, but I, I am. A member of the Essex Union County of Association of Psychologists, the Society for Personality Assessment, and also a member of the uh, International Rorschach Exchange. What's that? It's just a, a scientific group that sends out uh, once or twice a year a book called Rorschachana, and it's just research, and people write things about their um, research on the Rorschach. Have you ever published anything related to the field of psychology? Yes. Can you uh, tell the jury, have you ever published any books? I've had 12 books published. In 1978, I published Violence, Perspectives on Murder and Aggression. In 1980, I published Handbook on Stress and Anxiety. In uh, 1981, Psychopathology of Homicide. In uh, 1983, uh, the title of the book was Sexual Dynamics of Antisocial Behavior. And there was a second edition in 1997. In 1989, I published Sex, Murder, and Sex, Aggression. In uh, 1996, I published Explorations in Criminal Psychopathology, Clinical Syndromes with Forensic Implications. And there was a second edition in 2007. The, the reason I published that was Clinical Syndromes with Forensic Implications, because the DSM often doesn't do 
well with a lot of disorders that are forensically related because the DSM really wasn't set up to be a forensic manual. It's set up for hospital practice, mental health centers, offices, and so on. So that book supplemented it in, in, in a sense. So, so what you mean is there is there nuance to applying diagnoses from the DSM in a forensic setting? Well, not nuance. There's disorders that you see. It. Are we still doing qualifications at this point? Uh, I think we are. Are we, Mr. Shaw? We are. All right, save that question for later. Then. I will, Judge. Right. So moving on, you were telling us about some of your books. Now. Yeah, and then 2000, I published Serial Offenders, Current Thought, Recent Findings. Um, in 2004, Sexual Murder, Catathymic, and Compulsive Homicides, a specific type of sexual murder. And uh, the second edition came out last year. In 2017, I uh, published a book titled Psychiatric Aspects of Criminal Behavior. It's the Collected Papers of Eugene Revich. This is an edited book. Eugene Revich was a, a psychiatrist and a, a teacher of mine. He actually became a mentor of mine, and we became colleagues and friends. And um, his papers, many of which were published in the 1950s and 60s and, and 70s, are as relevant today as they were then. And they meant so much to me when I trained. I almost memorized them. And I didn't want him to get lost in the archives somewhere. So I put it together into an edited book where the first part is on uh, sexual aggression, the second part on criminal behavior, and the third part of the book is on epilepsy and epileptoid violence. Dr. Revich is also a neurologist. And there's a number of articles in there on what's called paroxysmal manifestations of non-epileptic origin. Sounds fancy, but all it means is an explosion that's really not a result of epilepsy. Sometimes that's hard to differentiate. So that's that book. It was a book of honor, really, to somebody, and got really, really good reviews, I, I, which I was happy about. But I had nothing to do with the content. I just put it together. Doctor, have you ever written any uh, chapters in any books? Yes, I've written, I think, about 25 uh, chapters in different people's books. Uh, I've been invited to write chapters. So I think it's around 25 chapters in, in different books. Some were my own books. Some were, uh, many were other people's books as well. Have you ever published articles in any journals? Yes, I've published, uh, I believe it's 43 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals. What's a, what's a peer-reviewed scientific journal? A, a peer-reviewed scientific journal is when you publish an article, research, or it doesn't have to necessarily be research. It could be a, um, a theoretical article or, or a literature review. You send it into a journal, and then you get what's called a blind review. Your identity is removed. Uh, all identifiers are removed. And they send it out to three, four, or five experts in the field to review it, your peers. And then they give feedback, and then you do what you have to do. That's what the peer review process is. It, it's a fairly long process, and um, in many top journals, there's about a 90% rejection rate. So a, a lot of people don't realize that. But I've published in all of the top uh, journals, including the Journal of the American Academy of Forensic Psychiatry, uh, Behavioral Science and the Law, Journal of Forensic Sciences, Journal of Family Violence, uh, International Journal of Offender Therapy and Comparative Criminology, and other top journals. And it's almost all on criminal behavior and extraordinary criminal behavior, sexual murder, serial sexual murder, necrophilia, crime scene staging, undoing, which is symbolic reverse light of homicide crime scene, 
foreign object insertions, uh, and so on. We recently published, and a lot of this is in, in collaboration with the FBI, because we have their extraordinary cases from all over the country. And recently, we published an article on confessions. You know, you hear a lot about false confession. There's a lot of research on false confession, but our study was not on false confession, it was on confessions. How do people confess? Because people confess in different ways, depending upon their crime. Doctor, have you ever testified uh, at a trial? Yes. Can you estimate approximately how many times you've testified at a trial? I never kept a record of how many times I've done this, uh, and I'm not good at estimating how many times I've done things, but I've been doing this now 46 years, 100, 200, perhaps 300 times. I, I just don't know. And were you qualified as an expert? Yes. Uh, what are some of the topics that you testified regarding? I mean, I've testified in state-of-mind cases, insanity, diminished capacity, passion provocation, duress, voluntary intoxication, competency to proceed, competency to waive Miranda rights, sentencing issues. Have you ever uh, been hired? Obviously, you're here testifying as my witness on behalf of the prosecutor today. Have you ever been hired by the defense? I have. In the, in the first third of my career, I've testified just about exclusively for the defense. I was hired mostly by the defense. In the last third of my career, I've been retained mostly by the prosecutor. And in the middle, it kind of went in, in different ways. Have you ever given an opinion that was different from the party or the side that hired you? Yes. Can you estimate in the last, call it 10 years, approximately how many times that's happened? Well, I can tell you the exact time in the past 10 or a little bit longer, 10, maybe almost 15 years, because I have a record of it. And the, re the reason I have a record of it is someone asked me just that question maybe 10, 12 years ago. And they asked me, essentially, did you ever get hired by the prosecutor, for example, and gave an opinion uh, consistent with the defense expert? And I said yes. Now, when you're in court and someone asks you if you ever did something and you say yes, the next question is, how many times did you do it? And I didn't know how many times I did it. So I kept a record then of, of the times of the various offices that I was retained by, uh, as well as defense, as well as defense. And so what is the number in the approximately last 10 to 15 years that you've um, given an opinion different from the party that hired you? Okay, now you want a number, so I'm going to have to count this. So you, just give me a second. Okay. Okay, just give me a second. Okay, I came up with 30. 30, where I, yeah, 30 since you started keeping track. Yeah. Doctor, do you have any experience with psychological testing? Yes, I have um, I have extensive experience with psychological testing. Psychological testing is very simple. It, it, it's, a way to, it's simply a way to measure mental process. It's, it's really nothing more difficult and more complicated than that. And it's generally pretty straightforward psychological testing. But I will say, if you don't know what you're doing, you can really mess this up real quickly. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say I taught psychological testing for over 20 years. When I was on the faculty of um, the New Jersey Medical School, I was on the faculty over there. I don't know if I even mentioned that, but I was on the faculty over there at um, UMDNJ for um, from 90 from 77 to uh, 99, I think, or 2000. For 23 years, I taught psychological testing to third-year medical students who rotated through uh, psychiatry service. I also conducted a year-long psychodiagnostic seminar for our doctoral interns who were training over at the VA and um, did that for over 20 years as well. In addition, I've published two papers on the Rorschach in journals. I um, also developed my own projective test titled the, the Criminal Fantasy Test. And it was really based on, as a projective test and based on the format of the thematic apperception test, which is simply a test. You show a person a somewhat ambiguous picture. 
and their job is to create a story based on the picture. And you get kind of their inner fantasies, uh, their inner thoughts, and so on. Because sometimes an individual, patient or otherwise, if you ask them a question, they won't tell you directly. But if you give them a test and ask them to create a story, very often it's revealed in that. So I, I was always impressed with the content that I got from the TAT. So I worked with an artist, a colleague of mine worked with an artist, and we developed a fant criminal fantasy test of 12 different ambiguous sorts of crimes, and the object was to create a story about it. It was published in 1981 in the Journal of Clinical Psychology. At that time, a number of test publishers wanted me to develop this into a, a, marketed, a marketable test where you could you know, sell it and, and that sort of thing. And I did not do it. I should have done it. It's one of my greatest professional regrets because I think of all of the people that I saw over the past 40 years, but I, I didn't do it. But anyway, I did that. Also, I discussed psychological testing in several of my books or, or many of my books and, and how to do it, what to do, what not to do. And how to go about it, and so on. Would you ever render a diagnosis based on a psychological test? No, you never render a diagnosis based on a psychological test. Psychological testing can support a diagnosis. A diagnosis is made clinically, and it's made based on the clinical criteria, symptoms and behaviors delineated in the DSM-5. Now, the DSM-5, this is a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. It's been around since 1952. It goes through different editions. That's how you make a diagnosis based on symptoms and behavior. Now, what's the value of testing? Well, testing can support a diagnosis or it can go in a different direction and not support a diagnosis. But you never make a diagnosis based on psychological testing. As a matter of fact, if you look at some of the tests that have computer printouts, I don't use those, but a lot of people do, it says very clearly, these are hypotheses, these are suggestions, these are for your consideration. But no, the answer to your question directly, you never make a diagnosis based on psychological testing. Judge, at this point, I'd like to offer Dr. Schlesinger as an expert in the field of forensic psychology. After the defense offers no objection to Dr. Schlesinger's qualifications, Judge Taylor qualifies him as an expert witness. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we continue our look at the prosecution's direct examination of Dr. Lewis Schlesinger as Christopher Shellhorn leads the witness into a rebuttal of the testimonies of Drs. Simring and Hassan. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.